Hi, this is Kelly from Fresno, California. Jed Bartlett is my president, is a chipperish media production, and is entirely funded by listeners like you. To support chipperish and gain access to exclusive content, please visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Okay, what's next? Hi, and welcome to Jed Bartlett is My President, a podcast about the West Wing and denial. My name is Lonnie Diane Rich, and every week I take an in-depth look at an episode of the West Wing along with a special guest. And for a little while, we pretend that the worst thing happening in the White House right now is lots and lots of really terrible flirting. This week's episode is Six Meetings Before Lunch, the 18th episode of Season 1. And with me this week is my special guest, Dr. Kelly Jones. Dr. Jones is a learning and development consultant and qualitative researcher with 15 years of experience in instructional design, curriculum development, new media, and learning technologies. She holds a PhD in curriculum instruction and currently works as a corporate training manager. Previously, she was a faculty member and director of learning Technologies at Mercer University. In 2011, she was named a Governor's Teaching Fellow by the Institute of Higher Education at the University of Georgia. She's an advocate for new literacies, lifelong learning, open educational resources, and public libraries, and I love her. Welcome, Dr. Jones. Hi, Lonnie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm thrilled to be here. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you. And I'm so excited that I get to talk to you about this stuff, especially in this episode. You have so much experience and, and knowledge about education, and educational issues, which we're going to get into during this talk. So I'm really excited to have you here. And thank you so much for joining me. Oh, absolutely. You're doing an amazing job with this podcast. And I love seeing the reaction. I think people are in love with the show. And <laughs> I'm so glad you have us rewatching The West Wing and letting us be in denial. Oh, there's never been a better time to rewatch The West Wing than right now. Um, I do have my question for you. I have a question that I ask every guest, and this one is geared specifically toward your expertise. You identify yourself as a Southern Fried Scholar. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the podcast, and I absolutely love that idea. If you were in the Oval Office with Bartlett, what would you tell him is his first step to fix education? Wow, I would love to have that conversation with President Bartlett. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the the very first step is to kick out all of the politicians. Right. Uh, so <laughs> just as we do not need politicians designing our medical care without, mm -hmm. you know, the expertise of physicians, mm -hmm. we do not need politicians designing educational policies without the expertise of educators who are trained and schooled and researched in this area, um, I think it, we do a huge disservice and a massive injustice to our public schools, to all of our teachers, and to all of our children by letting policy be dictated by people who are trying to win elections instead of people who are genuinely trying to educate the world. Oh, hallelujah, sister. Yeah, you said that beautifully. <laughs> and hopefully President Bartlett is listening right now and will take your advice. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> All right. This episode aired on April 5th, 2000 and was written by who else? Aaron Sorkin, who has written pretty much all of them. The first four years of The West Wing are insane. He writes almost all of them. This was also directed by Clark Johnson. One of the defining moments of this episode is CJ doing a lip sync of Ronnie Jordan's The Jackal. As the story goes, Sorkin caught Allison Janney doing this in her trailer on the set and was so taken with her performance that he actually wrote it into the script without really thinking about maybe all of the consequences of that. But, you know, we're going to definitely talk about that. Right, absolutely. <laughs> All right, are you ready for the synopsis, Dr. Jones? Let's go. All right, let's do this thing. In this episode of The West Wing, Zoe lies to a reporter about an incident on campus. Toby's in a good mood about the Mendoza confirmation, but don't worry, Mandy's around to spoil it before we get too freaked out. Josh deals with the judge and his views on slavery reparations, and terrible, terrible, romantic pairings argue about political issues instead of just having sex like normal people. Oh, 
All right. So this episode of The West Wing is is packed with issues and stuff going on. There is so many things happening. It's kind of hard. You bounce back and forth. We've got school vouchers. We've got reparations. We've got Chinese panda bears. Um, Conflict is the heart of any story. And these issues are kind of couched in conflict a little bit. We have Mallory hating on Sam for his position paper on school vouchers. Josh is worried about Judge Breckenridge's stance on reparations. Mandy wants a panda bear and Josh is blocking her on it. (laughs) It's all this stuff going on with these issues. Dr. Jones, what did you think about all of the things going on in this episode? Well, to me, I think this episode is about the power of argument and Mm -hmm. the power of diversity of thought and the importance of listening to the viewpoints of other people. Um, So Aristotle says, the sign of an educated mind is the ability to entertain an idea without believing in it. And I think Mm -hmm. Sam beautifully illustrates that for for us in this episode. Absolutely, absolutely. Especially at the end when we discover that the position paper that he wrote wasn't even his own stance. It was simply an opposition paper. Right. uh, Which I thought was was really, really fun. Um, But we we have this, uh, we have all of these issues. And this is something that West Wing does is that they they kind of try to make these issues. They talk about these issues and they have people fight back and forth about these issues. And then they kind of couch it in sort of an interpersonal conflict. You know, we have Mallory coming in, right? And she's saying, you know, I despise you and everything you stand for. Sam. It's my day of jubilee. I despise you and everything you stand for. All right, my day was a little bit better a few seconds ago, but that's all right. How could you write that position paper? (sighs) Which position paper? Don't play dumb with me. No, honestly, I am dumb. Most of the time I'm playing smart. So these scenes with Mallory and Sam seem like they should be couched in this personal conflict you know, about their relationship and, you know, whether they're dating or not and what's been going on with them. And, and it's kind of fun, but we have so much back and forth about the school vouchers. It almost feels like the intellectual side of the conversation kind of overwhelms the personal side of the storytelling because the storytelling is all about what's personal, what's at stake, you know, what does this mean for these characters? And especially with Sam and Mallory, I've never been invested in this relationship. I've never particularly cared for Mallory much. Again, she kind of reminds me of Mandy in, in that she's she's sort of this forced romantic conflict and, and really super overwritten. Um, what did you think about that? Yeah, I agree. I I was more watching Sam and Mallory to see who was going to win the debate. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and I like the fact that they were supposed to be dating didn't even I, I don't see that between them. I, I kind of felt like they were arguing a case back and forth. Like if they were both law students in mock trial, I would have fully yes. bought in. Um, but they did have a line in there that I loved. So mm-hmm. um, when she's arguing about dating, I thought we had something going on. We do. And yet you haven't told me that you favor school vouchers. First of all, hang on. We haven't been on a date yet. I am saying that And what kind of dates have you had that you're amazed that this hasn't come up? I know. You have to wonder what kind of dates is she going on? She's a school teacher. But that's the first thing she talks about on any date that she's on, you know. And and maybe we should start our dates that way. Like maybe we should bring a list of like drop dead political issues that we need to agree on before we, you know, before we have drinks. Exactly. This far and no further. Like I will not meet you halfway. These are the issues on which I will not meet you halfway. Exactly. Yeah, so I thought that this was the school voucher argument, um, you know, was interesting. I was, you know, like pretty much on Mallory's side, I think. I was against school vouchers. Um, But it's it's kind of an interesting discussion. This, of course, was a big hot topic at the time, you know, at the time that this this episode aired. Um, And so... But for me, one of the one of the things that that bothers me sometimes about the West Wing, especially in the early years, is that we do get caught up in the intellectual versus the emotional, that we have these intellectual arguments about policy and about um, about politics and all this kind of stuff. And we kind of miss out on on the emotional stakes in this, you know, in this uh, in this argument, because 
we have these two and they've sort of had a flirtation, but we haven't been terribly invested in the relationship. There hasn't been much going on. Every time Mallory is is on screen, she is is written in this really strident way that that Aaron Sorkin tends to write the women that he has in major romantic conflicts. Um, one of the things I've talked about before is that Aaron Sorkin, when he's writing women that aren't you know, primarily engaged in a romantic conflict, he'll write them really well. That's what happened with Donna. Donna got in under the wire because Sorkin just wasn't paying attention to her. So he wrote her as a person first and a woman, you know, second. Right. <laughs> but right. when he writes these romantic pairings, he writes them as Mandy has the same problem. The women oh. first, they're, they're the, the, the romantic lead women and they have to be sassy and, and coming out of the gate and just going for people rather than necessarily being people first. And, and Mallory has always felt to me like a cardboard stand up with hair. Yeah. You know? Well, and I, I think it part of this is the danger of taking political advocacy in an area where you actually have no experience or empathy. Right. So you're, you know, so she's representing the other Mallory mm -hmm. went to private school. She went to private high school. She went to private college. She was incredibly well-educated from a wealthy family. She has not been a public school student. She hasn't been a parent, you know, in a situation where they're trapped in a, mm -hmm. in a bad school zone. Right. Um, and I think you miss some of that emotion when you speak for someone else, but you mm -hmm. don't actually have that first person experience or that empathy. Um, and it is really interesting to see how they handled the school voucher issue because that was a hot policy topic in the 1990s. And then the No Child Left Behind Act was passed mm -hmm. in 2001. But I don't really see the show coming back and addressing that for the yeah. whole time it's running. So mm -hmm. you have this huge educational policy disaster yeah. that was you know, that was born in 2001. And the mm -hmm. show went on for several years after that. And I've never really seen them come back and tackle that in the way that I would have liked to have seen them do that. Yeah, I think because it wouldn't have happened, No Child Left Behind wouldn't have happened reasonably during a Bartlett administration. Like, it was, oh, such, yeah. it was such a tremendously tragic oh. and horrible policy. And I think that we can, you know, definitely you and I can absolutely agree on that. Oh, man. Um, but uh, it, was, it was basically every child left behind. But one of the things, though, that they talk about when they're talking about this issue um, and the thing that I think I've always felt really strongly about is that you need to put the money and put the effort and put, of course, the common sense, which is something that we've been missing a lot in our educational policy for many years into these schools that are that are at risk. One of the things that happened as a result of No Child Left Behind is that the schools that had the fewest resources end up getting the lowest scores and then end yep. up having fewer resources. The schools with the fewest resources need more resources. You know? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's ridiculous to think that you can take this this you know, no care at all stick punishment policy to these schools that are already in crisis, you know? And so like the idea of vouchers at a point where, you know, getting some kids out, getting some kids respite when you know you can't save them all, save some, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, when, when Sam was talking about that, I could certainly sympathize with that. But overall, you know, our, our entire educational system has suffered so greatly from these really, really poor policy decisions. Absolutely. And it's, it's forcing out the good teachers who just simply can't take it anymore. Well, in a day and age where you're told, um, hey, your your GRE score was so high, you're too smart to be a teacher. Yeah. Like, and I, I had, I've actually had people say that to me, like, why mm -hmm. in the world would you go teach? You can do so much more. Teaching should be the ultimate, like yeah. the, the top of the top, the smartest mm -hmm. of the smart people should be the ones that are teaching. And we, we have in, like reversed that as a society. And I think it's from the, un, the deprofessionalization of teaching oh, yeah. and, and just the sheer lack of appreciation that we have for education um, mm -hmm. as a country. Um, and it's, it's, it's sad and it's difficult to fix and it will take a lot of money to fix, but yeah. it's going to take expertise first. And it has to be, yeah. you know, someone who's not being led by political aspirations. Mm -hmm. Well, that's the thing. Like one of the things that I love about the West Wing and that I feel like should be, 
you know, the, the driving force behind every profession is that the people in the West Wing, the characters in the West Wing are so earnest and they really genuinely want to do the work and they want to do the work well, you know, they're policy wonks, they're nerds, yes. you know, they love this stuff. And I think that the people who should be running the schools should be the educational wonks and the people who should be running for office should be the policy wonks, should be Absolutely. the people who will, you know, corner you at a party and talk about this for 45 minutes, you know, because they're just so excited about it, you know? Um, and so this is one of the things where like in education in all of these, these, you know, pivotal like social institutions, we need people in there who love the work, you know, and when we politicize, you know, we make a political football out of all of these things and end up putting them in a position where no matter how much they love the work, no matter how much they love teaching, no matter how passionate they are about education, it becomes an impossible environment for anybody who is good at it to want to stay. Absolutely. You know, anybody who cares that deeply, the only people who can stay are the people who don't care that deeply because it hurts you, you know? That's right. I mean, one of the one of the main factors in vulnerability, I talk about a lot about how vulnerability is is part of what defines a character, what defines people, it's what helps us connect to each other. And one of the main things in vulnerability is how deeply you care about something. And what I love about these characters in the West Wing is how passionately they care about all of these things. You know? Right. And those are the people that you want in these jobs. In these really tough jobs, the people that care so much about it, you know, you're Leslie Nopes, you know, <laughs> you want the people who are nerdy and who care so much about it, um, that they would be there doing the work even if they weren't getting paid. Right. Absolutely. So, I mean, that's one of the things that I love about this show is that even though we do have these moments where we have this kind of scale, you know, sort of tipping between the emotional and personal investment and stakes, which is what story is really about. It's about where these people are emotionally. We should be invested in Sam and Mallory emotionally and what the consequence mm -hmm. of this conversation would be to their relationship. Whereas we don't really care about their relationship, the conversation, the intellectual side of the conversation itself and the ability to make the argument on both sides, I think is really interesting. Um, but it's, it's, we're not invested in that emotional conversation, but the intellectual conversation is so diverting and entertaining that you can kind of get carried away with that as well. Oh yeah. I was in it for the banter. Oh like, yeah. <laughs> no question. <laughs> um, but it is kind of funny what you're saying about letting the people with the passion mm -hmm. figure out how to do the work. And yeah. I know this is like completely not related, but it makes me think of Buffy because oh, everything yeah. does. Buffy and the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> absolutely, right? Because when you have the Watchers trying mm -hmm. to dictate the work of a Slayer, yep. it's disastrous. And mm -hmm. it's the same thing when you have a politician trying to dictate the work of a teacher, you know, who, by the yeah. way, should be as powerful as Buffy in our, <laughs> in exactly. our world. So that's my metaphor, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really good metaphor, and it will give us a nice move from Buffy to Josh and the judge and the reparation discussion, which is, <laughs> which is a whole other thing. This episode deals in so many issues of race, and I don't think all of them were intentional. Um, but the most striking one is this conversation between Josh and Judge Breckenridge, who is being considered, um, he's about to be confirmed for a federal judge seat, um, but then was uh, was quoted on a book jacket as talking mm -hmm. about reparations that, that all of white America should see you know, this argument and understand these arguments about slavery repar reparations, which of course right. is always a hot topic. And I think it was especially a hot topic back then. Um, and so I thought this was a really kind of interesting thing. Josh obviously went in saying he was out of his depth and did not he was so out of his depth, <laughs> did not represent like the arguments that he made were not good. <laughs> they were really, so really painful. And, and Judge Breckenridge was, was so cool throughout the whole thing, you know. Yeah. Um, so what did you think? How did you respond to this particular storyline? Well, watching Josh kind of made me cringe. Um, yeah. But I, and I, I watched the episode a couple of times in preparation for this. And the first time I thought, I just thought, Oh, Josh, you yeah. let everybody down. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but then I, I tried to reframe it a little to say, here is someone who is a fierce intellectual, mm -hmm. brilliant man who's competent in so many things. And yet 
on the issue of race, he he just falls apart. Yeah. He's not, you know, he's not able to um, to engage in the same way that he engages with other things. And you can tell he's he's afraid. Mm-hmm. He's, he's afraid of the conversation. And I think that that is the driving force behind a lot of the problems that we have around race. Because mm-hmm. people are afraid to bring, you know, you're afraid to say the wrong thing. You're afraid to bring it up. You're afraid to interpret something the wrong way. And so important things just don't get talked about. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But I love... Uh, Judge Breckenridge's comments mm-hmm. about how the United States is meant to be unfinished. You know, we're meant to keep discussing and debating and read great books and talk about them because, I mean, that's the ultimate metaphor for education. And so I kind of saw the connection between mm-hmm. the voucher system and the reparation argument. And he made a really good point about if you want to measure the impact of slavery or these racial relationships, look at the current state of society and look at the schools yeah there is you know an incredible racial injustice in our public school system today Mm -hmm. and and you know that is a real and obvious problem and so I did I I felt bad at first like I was upset with Josh and then I bad for Josh and then I thought they sort of made light of the whole conversation and there's so much more there that they could have done yeah, and in the end, it felt sort of brushed off because yeah. we have this moment where where Judge Breckenridge says, you know, no amount of money, right, can make up for what happened, and and that's yeah. True. And it was interesting to me that like the the call that originally came into Leo, you know, about the book jacket cover, yeah. it wasn't so much that Judge Breckenridge believed in reparations as it was that he was being quoted on a book jacket. Yes, exactly. it's kind of one of those things like, well, we don't really care what you believe. We we care when you start going public with it. And I immediately mm-hmm. thought, what if they had Twitter back then? <laughs> and, and that was a tweet and not a book jacket cover. That would be a whole different conversation. It would be a whole different thing. <laughs> Twitter has brought down many a professional person. <laughs> Right. And then I was like imagining this tweet conversation Mm -hmm. between Judge Breckenridge and Josh. And I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, my God, that would be a disaster. (laughs) Oh, my God. Can you even imagine? But Judge Breckenridge is is so cool. He's so cool. He's played by Carl Lumley, who some of you may remember as as Agent uh, Dixon on um, on Alias. That's where I remember him from. So I've always loved this actor. He's one of my favorites. Um, But he's in this conversation with Josh and Josh is not representing things terribly well we have this horrible (laughs) horrible moment where josh says and while While we're on the subject subject of the civil Civil war War, let's remember the six hundred thousand white men who died over the issue of slavery is that why they died it's why a lot of them died right and and you can tell he um you can tell he has had this argument like he is used to being pushed back he's used to um the objections he has had this conversation he's thought it through Mm -hmm. he's researched it you know he makes that one comment about well gee maybe we should get a civil rights expert in here and that you know that is his area of expertise (laughs) and so you know once again you have a political strategist trying Mm -hmm. to make decisions about racial relationships when you have a civil rights expert in the room and so (laughs) like it's just one more example of how we we tend to not quite honor or not quite appreciate deep expertise because we don't want to take the time to learn or to deeply debate because it's complicated right it's hard because it's so complicated and it's so hard to understand these issues and you know when josh says six hundred thousand white men died over the issue of slavery and then we have this wonderful moment from the judge (laughs) is that why they died and it's such a great response and i don't think that we hit it hard enough in the editing, in the no. direction of this piece, because it slides right by. But the fact that he asks that question, is that why they died? Because the reality of it is, no, that's not why they died. They died because of the resources. When the South tried to secede, they took their resources with them, and we went to war to get those resources back. Right. It's always nice to be able to say, oh, yes, we fought you know, for the issues of slavery and for the issues, you know, but that's all just packaging. Right. You know, I mean, that's gift yeah. wrap. 
that's, that's that's not what it's about. It's always about money. War is always about money. It's always about resources. Mm-hmm. And that's what it comes down to every time. So to to smugly say 600,000 white men <laughs> died, you know, to end slavery, I feel like is, is one of these things right. that when he said it, I was... I was so uncomfortable with that. And yeah. and the other thing that, that made me uncomfortable in this was uh, we have this in the script. There's actually a, a historical um, um, problem. Uh, Breckenridge says that the order uh, for 40 acres and a mule was rescinded for years after it was established. It was established in January 1865 by General Sherman. Um, But it was actually about eight months. Andrew Johnson came in after the death of Abraham Lincoln and had it rescinded that fall. So we like to think, you know, when we look back on our American history, we like to think that, you know, we had these slaves and it was so awful, but we gave them 40 acres. We gave them a mule. Like, they should have been fine, right? They that didn't don't fix even everything. that. They didn't even get that. It was so tragic. It was held up in the courts for eight months and then it was rescinded. So, you know, in the, in the script, uh, Breckenridge says it was four years later, but it wasn't. You know, right. there, was, there was nothing. There was no time. None of this. I don't think anybody saw a mule. I don't think anybody did. Um, <laughs> And so when you when you look back on that history and on that reality, I mean, of course, it is the great shame, you know, of America and to be having this conversation between Josh and Breckenridge. And then later on, when Josh brings up that he doesn't have his wallet because it was taken from him by the Germans. Germans. Oh, my God. I mean, that was that was like the lowest point for me, because, yes, the Holocaust was a horrible, horrible thing but it has nothing to do with slavery. It has nothing to do. And no, in no way does, you know, being a descendant of somebody who was in the Holocaust mean that no white people, you know, who have benefited (laughs) from this horribly, horribly lopsided system for so long have any responsibility to think about, you know, about what has been done and how to correct it and how to make it better, you know? yeah, and Judge Breckenridge makes a really important point because even though he is arguing for reparations, he says mm-hmm. no amount of money can fix this. Exactly. And and that's the truth. Like this is not something that can be solved economically because this is mm-hmm. this is a culture issue. This is a morality yeah. issue. This is deep and it's complicated and it's ugly. And it would be so much easier to write a check and say, Hey, oh, we're yeah. good. And we're you done, know? right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be mm-hmm. like you go in as a rape victim and they give you a like a, you know, a check and say, well, yeah. here you go. This is how much your pain is worth. Exactly. In, in a lot of ways, it really diminishes mm-hmm. the horror of, of that entire situation. Right. And, and what I have not seen us do is to, to sort of explore as a country what are we going to do about this? Mm-hmm. So like in Germany, for example, the way that all of our like sixth grade students, everybody could kind of goes to DC. Mm-hmm. They have a tradition of field trips in Germany where they take students to the historically preserved concentration camps and mm-hmm. they don't try to hide that part of their history. They don't right. brush it under the rug. They don't mm-hmm. minimize it. And the idea is we want to teach this as Mm -hmm. the horrible thing that it was in order to make sure it never happens again, you know, and I, Mm -hmm. and I haven't seen that same kind of, um, we need to look at this together and we need to talk about it together and we need to examine it from that lens Mm -hmm. in terms of slavery and and racial relationships in in this country. So I think, you know, that's a big missing piece that, I don't know how, I mean, I don't know how to do that. I certainly don't have the answers. Right. Um, but watching conversations like this that then get cut off after a couple mm-hmm. minutes and everybody goes to lunch and then there's the joke about paying for lunch, which I also thought was kind of tacky. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> you know, yes. the West Wing does so many things so well. Yeah. But race is really not one of those things. Right. And I think that that is actually a really nice transition into um, CJ's wrapping of the jackal. (laughs) (laughs) All right. This is the thing. Like, Allison Janney is adorable. And she 
plays this wonderfully and it's beautiful and it's funny and it's cute. Um, but it is, I mean, it, it was uncomfortable for me. She's, I think that the West Wing and that the people behind the West Wing had good intentions, you know, and, and were not looking to to mock any particular art forms, especially particular art forms that are associated with, you know, certain racial groups. You know? Right. Um, but the, it is, you know, kind of, I don't know, and, and I'm probably overreacting to this, so you can correct me. But it feels a little bit like the musical version of wearing blackface. Is it kind of in that in that <laughs> range? It's not quite so bad no, as blackface. I and I don't think, think it was, was intended that way. But it felt I was uncomfortable. It's this room full of white people. They're doing the rap. I think that it was well intentioned. I think that it was the difference between mockery and celebration. I think yes. that they were celebrating the art form. You know, I really do. But it made me uncomfortable. I don't know. Am I might I be an oversensitive. No, I don't think so. And your training as a communication specialist is going to make you more sensitive mm-hmm. to those issues. But I don't think it was an intentional statement. I don't think so either. You know, I, I kind of saw this as, um, you know, he saw Allison Janning actually used to do this in her trailer, yeah. right? In her in her dressing area. And I think just genuinely having fun yeah. with a really great piece of right. music, you know? I, but yeah, but having this the, come on the heels of this reparations know, argument so, and the was, vouchers argument, yeah. it felt like it, it kind of landed mm-hmm. like a lead balloon for me. Yeah, and the thing that got me is like I loved the camaraderie of it mm-hmm. and I loved oh, this, I know. Right, the celebration of it. Mm-hmm. But I thought, okay, we've never seen CJ do that before and we Mm -hmm. never see her do that again and yet the way that it's framed is like this tradition right you say that Mm -hmm. everybody knows it's the jackal you if you haven't seen it you haven't seen shakespeare the way it was the way it's meant to be done all that kind of stuff (laughs) and yet it's as as the viewers we're just supposed to kind of buy into that and so Mm -hmm. i think it's kind of a telling not showing yeah. situation yeah. where they wanted to put this thing in because it was cute and they didn't right. really think about it in terms of the character and the context and you know right and how it plays in the context of the rest of the show yes absolutely but any celebration in my life that Alice and Janie would come and lip sing she yeah. can see oh no absolutely <laughs> if she was doing blondie Oh my if she God. was doing right. Rapture Anything. by Blondie, it would have been great. It would have been yes. fine. It's just it the been only awesome. thing is that it feels it yeah. feels like it has this hint of, of the potential for like mockery of mm-hmm. of art forms that, you know, that are not, you know, traditionally white art forms, you know. Right. Um, and and that can happen sometimes and people do that carelessly. And I, mm-hmm. I think that I honestly really think that the West Wing you know, has great intentions. You oh, know, yeah. They obviously mean well. They're very, very earnest, you know. They, but but here, in this particular episode, so many things are landing so hard for oh, me. Yeah, it's just bad. <laughs> that but, I'm just struggling with it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So from, like, the lens of an educator, if you're looking mm-hmm. at these people and as having learning opportunities, you would yes. say, you know, like, you can't truly grapple with ideas that you haven't been exposed to. Mm-hmm. And you can't truly become appreciative or sensitive without a certain amount of empathy. Yeah. And so they, it's almost this unawareness where they don't know that they're being insensitive because right. they, they haven't, like, they don't have that ability yet mm-hmm. to see that that is the issue. Um, and, and so that the kind of like, we're going to try to address race and we're going to try to do it from the perspective of a liberal political party was right. very well intentioned mm-hmm. but without the the really real of <laughs> you know right, of- because we weren't talking about these issues i mean this is the thing about america like honestly until twitter yeah <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. people who had something to say from a different perspective other than the main mass media you know predominantly predominantly white perspective right you know just didn't get their voices heard and now we have all this social media and you're able to like interact with so many people and people who ordinarily wouldn't have a microphone are finding themselves with bigger platforms from which to speak um and so people are waking up i think to a lot of this stuff the way that we we weren't awake to it in you know 2000 
You know, we just didn't have that cultural consciousness that we have now. And I find myself as I'm a lot of the the work that I've been analyzing over the last couple of years has been made like late 90s, you know, mid 2000s, that kind of stuff. And to find the difference in consciousness from then to now um, is 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 somewhat staggering. Um, And even my consciousness, like, you know, I mean, we haven't talked about a lot about, you know, gender issues in this this episode because it is is predominantly, uh, you know, focused on racial issues. Um, But I find myself looking at things that that I wouldn't have blinked at 15 years ago that would never have registered on my radar 15 years ago that I'm looking at now and I'm thinking, well, that's, you know, that's wrong. Like there were (laughs) things that I used to as a woman just completely accept and never question, you know, and now because we have so much more consciousness and I think that it's a it's a definitely a good sign for our society but it sometimes makes it difficult when engaging with these stories from that time to to look past you know what's happening in the story or to yeah. like you know focus on what's happening in the story without seeing some of these things you know that that seemed to me like so painful and Josh's going back to the reparations discussion Josh's awkwardness I think was beautifully presented in the scripted material but i i feel like we kind of missed showing that and and really landing that as like josh is wrong here like we we understand that josh is wrong here Mm -hmm. um we get that wonderful one line oh is that how they died is that why they died you know from the judge but like that's it you know and we don't really get enough of that to get a sense of where we're supposed to land on that argument at the end. Well, and that's actually what he does there is actually mm-hmm. a demonstration of one of the most powerful teaching strategies ever. Mm-hmm. And we call mm-hmm. it the Socratic method. Yeah. And so mm-hmm. instead of telling, you know, information or lecturing, you ask questions right. and force the learners to answer and to continue, ask those questions right? of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to continue that questioning. And Josh just simply moves past the question because addressing Mm -hmm. that question is really hard. But the question is a beautiful question. Absolutely. It's such a great question and it's put in so beautifully and I feel like it's undercut. It's so easy to miss, you know, in that, in that moment. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it reminds me the year that this aired in 2000, um, Mm -hmm. I was an undergraduate and I took a class from a brilliant professor and it was a Mm -hmm. gender studies class. Uh-huh. And so from a, a poor white girl from middle Georgia taking a gender studies class in college was absolutely surreal and a whole uh-huh. other planetary experience. But it was like this intellectual social awakening. And yeah, it literally transformed my life. And oh, I, will, yeah. I will never forget about four weeks into the class, she said, this class is going to ruin television for you. You're never going to be able to watch TV. <laughs> That's what I tell my way. students every and, time. <laughs> and when I watch episodes like this, I'm uh-huh. like, damn it. She was right. I know. I know. You'll because, never be able to do it. Yeah. No. But once you learn to see mm-hmm. through through that lens, you can't unsee. Yeah. And, no, absolutely. You know, and I think that even though it's awkward and not well done, the West Wing does illustrate that in this episode, though perhaps not the way that they intended to. <laughs> But, you know, I think that they genuinely mean, well, there's a lot of good stuff happening here. So mm-hmm. speaking of good stuff, let's let's move past all of this, you know, like horrible political discussion, <laughs> which I'm sure I'm going to be getting emails about um, and move on to Toby. Now, I got to tell oh. you, Toby, Toby has my heart. Toby <laughs> is my guy. His day of jubilee. I love this whole thing. I love how Toby can be both pessimistic and joyful at the exact same time. 51 yay votes is what we see on these screens before a drop of wine is swallowed. Because there's a little thing called what, Bonnie? Tempting fate. Tempting fate is what it's called. In the three months, this man has been on my radar screen. I have aged 48 years. This is my day of jubilee. I will not have it screwed up by what, Bonnie? By tempting fate. By tempting fate? These things take patience. These things take skill. These things take luck. In the 15 months we've been in office, what kind of luck have we had, Ginger? Bad luck. What kind of luck? Very bad luck. We've had very bad luck. It is this beautiful back and forth. I love that Mm -hmm. whole exchange. It's just gorgeous. And it's Socratic teaching. Like Toby, Toby would have been an awesome, awesome teacher. And I yep. love that part. And he's like, what kind of luck has this administration had? <laughs> <And> <laughs> Bad luck. 
But, you know, in a lot of ways, and, and I won't say any spoilers because I know some people are watching this for the first time. Yeah. But, but this show really does um, paint, you know, it, it's some scary foreshadowing yeah. for some things that are coming. And so coming back and watching it from that lens, I want to go and hug Toby and make him mm-hmm. a pecan pie and just make him smile and Aww. be like, oh, Toby, please smile for me. <laughs> I love Toby. I love how freaked out Margaret gets when he's in a good mood. Oh, yeah. Hey, Toby. Hey there, Margaret. Are you okay? Yeah, why wouldn't I be okay? You don't usually say, hey there, Margaret. (laughs) What do I usually say? You usually growl something inaudible. Not today. I see. You, on the other hand, should turn that frown upside down. I'm sorry? Let a smile be your umbrella, Margaret. Okay, now you're scaring the crap out of me, Toby. And then, of course, he's in this good mood. And Mandy, Mandy, the worst character ever, ever to grace anything Sorkin has ever done, is the one who goes in and kills Toby's good mood and sets him back (laughs) to rights, which I think is good. Mandy, I feel like I've lost 180 pounds. And I'm smiling. I am laughing. I am enjoying the people I work with. I got to snap out of this. What's on your mind? I want you to help me get the Chinese to give us a new panda bear to replace Lum Lum. Well, that did the trick. I love, I love all of that. I love Toby in this. Mandy doesn't even bother me. As long as she's with Toby, making him, like, you know, come back to his his normal cranky (laughs) state of self. Um, I love that. But I love seeing Toby happy. It was so much fun. Some of my favorite parts in this episode were Toby being genuinely excited and happy. He got the Mendoza confirmation. He made this thing happen. And Toby is so idealistic. Like he believes in the good things and the right things, you know? And so when the right thing happens, when he got this man, you know, confirmed to the, to the Supreme court, he, he, finally did the thing you know he made the thing happen and it was this one moment of pure unadulterated joy for toby and it was fun to see him so out of character oh yeah (laughs) i know ginger was freaked out (laughs) but the thing i love about that and is the way like toby is motivated in the way he celebrates because this Mm -hmm. win is not about him right not his ego it's not his accomplishment this is a win for what he sees as the right side exactly a win for the good and that is what motivates him the good guys won yeah but you kind of have to to worry for toby or feel for toby because someone who is that open-hearted that Mm tender-hearted that earnest you know it is only a matter of time in politics before they are going to get seriously crushed well, I mean, that's why he has that, like, hard, crusty exterior. Right. I mean, I think that's just a matter of self-defense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Absolutely. But, oh, I love Toby. Mandy is, uh, does it, I, I have no words. I have no words. Like, what's Mandy a word that a means bad really bad? Character. Yeah, it's just bad. She's just a it's bad just character. It's so bad. And we've got this whole thing with the panda bear. The problem with Mandy <gasps> from the beginning, and the thing is, it's it's so tragic, because Moira Kelly, the actress who plays her, I actually quite like her. Yeah, she's great. Um, I think that she's adorable, and I've, I've liked her in other things. Um, but Mandy from the beginning has been overwritten and incredibly strident and just really, really difficult to, to engage with. And one of the things that I thought about while I was watching this episode was what was the deal with the panda bear? Are we trying to use the panda bear to make her more likable because she cares so much about these uh, lonely panda bears? He does is not that what this is supposed to be? <laughs> no. I thought, I oh, no. there was some of it that felt to me like that was the direction we were going where she was putting up a front you know about it's about relationships with China, but in reality, her her little her little tender Mandy heart was all Aww, um, was all focused a... on the on the panthers. Well, no, I didn't actually like <laughs> no, no. I didn't think that that was effectively expressed. But I thought, is that what they're going for here with the panda bears? <laughs> Did you see that? No, you're such okay. a nicer person than I am. <laughs> I'm not no. a very nice person. <laughs> you, you're giving her way more of the benefit of the doubt than I am. Uh, <laughs> no, absolutely not. I think. Um, Mandy is a bitch on wheels and <laughs> she is so badly written and one dimensional and I just want to sit her down and, and be like, bless your heart. 
You got to stop yeah. being a bitch, right? <laughs> that's that nice Southern way. Oh, yeah. of sitting, right. Sit a girl the, down. Oh, bless yeah. your heart. Bless your heart. You can say anything you want as long as you preface it with bless your heart. Okay. And, All right. I'll keep that in mind. She is. Oh, and think of what we could have done with the other storylines if we had just cut her out of this episode completely. We could have had a little more space, certainly. Yeah. And then you do kind of have this great moment where she and Toby are like, hey, Josh set us up. Let's go get even with Josh. But nothing ever happens. We don't do anything we get, I yeah, know. There's no this payoff the, for that. The only all. potential for actual story in this whole Panda Bear thing is that Josh sent her to Toby to set her up. Right. Because Toby, of course, would have no time and no energy and no interest in any of this, right? right. And so we have that that bit where Ban- where Mandy's all like, oh, let's, you know, let's go get him. And then it's dropped. Yeah. But that's that's like an actual story with actual consequences, which is something that we're really missing in this episode. We yeah. don't get a lot of that. We do have one storyline that actually does have, you know, real consequences and, and impact, emotional impact for our characters. And that's the one with Zoe at the party with the senator's son who had been arrested for uh, for um, selling drugs. Right. Right. I love that line of the story Um, Mm -hmm. and watching it just gave me a whole new appreciation for the Secret Service. And I really want someone to go make a spinoff show. Uh, Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, the agents are awesome. The situations that they face are so intriguing and and to Mm -hmm. kind of get that glimpse into their world. Um, you know, and realize their perspective and all the things that they're dealing with. So they're in there protecting the country while Bartlett and his crew are up there running the country. And that to me would be a fabulous story. And I think someone should write Mm -hmm. it and produce it right now so I can watch it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, it would be. It would be absolutely fantastic. We have uh, Gina Toscano, um, Agent Toscano, played by Georgia Fox, who, of course, people may know as uh, Sarah from uh, CSI. So she's uh, she's that was before she hit it big with CSI. But she's a great character. You know, the way that she is with with Zoe. um, I love that that time when uh, when CJ comes in and wants to get information from her. And she says, I cannot tell you anything. Yes. Because if this kid feels like she has to dodge me because I'm going to tattle on her, then I can't protect her. And her focus, Agent Toscano's focus always on, you know, protecting Zoe Mm -hmm. is is great. I really I love all of that stuff. I think that's really great. I love that Zoe got caught up in this moment where she was freaked out and she lied to the um, to the reporter. I loved the whole thing with CJ having to get into the president's face. They are not supposed to talk to my daughter on campus. It was Edgar Drama. I don't give a damn if it was the Bergen County Shopper's Guide. I'm going to talk to the press. You can't talk to the press. Watch me. I'm telling you now, Mr. President, this isn't about your daughter. It's about the first daughter, and that's my job, and you're not going down there. You, me, Charlie, and Zoe are the only four people who know she was lying, and there's no reason it doesn't need to stay that way. It's a non-story. You go down there, and it's a big story. So I just sit in my office and feel... Yes. CJ having to stand up to the president, having to find that courage within her to like yell at him and put him down, you know, in this moment was so, so great. And we get so little of this when it's when it's actually, you know, a real story, when there's something happening that has real emotional consequences, real personal consequences for everybody involved. When the president finds out that Zoe had been accosted by a member of the press, he wants to go out and and, you know, bring down the holy hammer of hell, you know, can't do it because CJ stops him. But I like all of the stuff that's happening in this story. But it feels like after everything else that we've been through in this episode, it's not even like a, a C level, but like a D level, you know, story. We've got so many other things that are taking up all the air in the room, not to mention Mandy and the stupid oh, panda bear, which nobody know, cares right. about, I know. you know, so. CJ to me is probably like the most underappreciated character. She is amazing. And her she, yeah. she mm-hmm. is so talented and so intelligent and so dedicated and so mm-hmm. she's just amazing. And I don't think she ever quite gets the recognition um 
or the appreciation that she really deserves, but she shines in this episode, especially, you know, when she's able to switch gears so fast when she walks into the Oval Mm -hmm. Office and Bartlett's reading the funny, you know, manners book from Washington and and they have that, you know, he's (laughs) quoting to her and he's like, in public, put not your hands on any part of your body, not usually covered. And without missing a beat, you know, CJ says, well, I do what it takes to keep the press corps happy, Mr. President. Exactly. And and being able to... You got to do what it takes. To shift from that Mm -hmm. into this immediate, I'm about to tell you something that's going to make you mad and I'm going to stay in control and I'm going to keep this, you know, in the office and I'm not going to let you go out there and make this into a story. And her ability to do that is just incredible. Mm Mm-hmm. And we also have this kind of nice resonance within this storyline as well, because we're talking about the threats that are coming down on Zoe because she's dating Charlie, who is a black man. We've got an interracial relationship and it's considering like all of the the race issues, both intentional and not Mm -hmm. intentional that have been brought up in this episode, that we've got this this nice little resonance kind of sitting in the center of the story. And this is the story that has the most personal stakes that has the most stuff going on that has consequence. Um, And I really wish that this had been our a story, that this had been the big thing that we focused on, you know, Zoe lying to the press, being freaked out by these people, her, uh, her guard that is trying to protect her, the issues going on around her relationship with Charlie. um, And then the president having to deal with not being able with all of his power, with everything, he's the most powerful man in the world, yeah. you know, and he cannot, he is not allowed to go down and yell at the <laughs> press, you know, because he's just not allowed to do it. Uh, all of that stuff, I think, is so strong and so powerful and so emotionally connected, which is something that we're not really getting out of the other stories. They're so they're so intellectually based and, and the emotion, what emotional consequences there may be in the discussion with John and the judge or with Sam and Mallory isn't really addressed. It's just, it's all this, this intellectual thing. And there's, there's not really a sense of that emotional investment, but in this story, there's, there's tons of stuff going on and it feels like it's sort of pushed off to the side. Yeah, I agree. And I think that was one of the reasons I was drawn to this episode because as bad as the bad parts are, what's Mm -hmm. good about this episode is really good. good. Uh, I love Zoe pushing Charlie against the wall in the hall in the Oval Office and just kissing him like there is nobody watching. Um, And she's such a great Mm -hmm. example of an idealistic, you know, young woman who is assertive and confident, but not a Mandy, you know, and and comfortable Mm -hmm. in her own skin and comfortable with her choices. Um, And but I read somewhere that they actually got hate mail for the show when because of the Zoe and Charlie relationship. And that was one of the reasons why the show takes some of the direction that it takes later was almost a deliberate response to the a right. reflection to of that, that hate mail. Yeah. And so I think like the way that they tried to address it was, was very well intentioned um, because mm-hmm. they, they didn't expect to be attacked for that storyline. And they were, you know, even as late as, as 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, hell, Cheerios oh, did a commercial, what, yes. two years ago? And that was such a good With an interracial couple and people freaked so out. Much. And now here we are a couple years later and it's all, you know, we're, we're having so many of these advertisements that have, that have mm-hmm. gay couples and interracial couples and all just like, and the thing is, it's, it's that normalizing exactly. of diversity. You know, it's, it's, it's not using diversity as like, hey, look at us and how advanced we are, you know, but it's, hey, this is how normal people live their lives, deal with it, we're just trying to sell some cereal. <laughs> exactly. you know? This is this is a really real thing with really real parents and really real kids. It's a really and real who, thing. Who has yes. not used Cheerios to try to calm down a toddler? <laughs> we know what that feels like. Honestly, <laughs> you know? right. Cheerios are the cereal of yes, comfort. Absolutely. You know, so. but, but that's a universal experience for mm-hmm. parents and I think that that's what Cheerios yeah. did so well with those because they're they're mm-hmm. talking about those universal human emotions and so the mm-hmm. parts of this episode or just the show in general when they when they swing on the continuum too far on intellectualism yeah and they let go of some of that emotion that it becomes mm-hmm. a great you know debate or it becomes a great issue but it's not so much a great story 
Right. The West Wing is really at its best when it is able to balance those intellectual arguments with real emotional stakes for all of the characters, that there's something personal, deeply personal at stake for all of these characters. Because while the intellectual arguments, I mean, because they're written by Aaron Sorkin and and the people on his team, you know, um, they are beautifully expressed. And I, and I love the expression of these opposing views in ways where you look at them and you think, well, he has a point and he has a point. This all makes sense. Everybody's (laughs) right. I'm like Tevya, you know, um, But I I love when they're able to do that. But that should always be secondary to telling the story, telling the emotional stakes, getting the consequences in there, having these characters dealing with things that truly challenge who they are, you know. And that's what I love about what's happening with CJ, you know, in this storyline. One thing I want to ask you, though, and this is probably, you know, a bell I'm going to ring quite a bit throughout the run of this podcast, Danny Kincannon. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Does he work for you? He does this thing with CJ where he's talking to her about this this thing that happened with Zoe. And he says, speaking Speaking of of tomorrow. tomorrow, When you start handing out information, please remember I came down here one in the morning to tell you this one. There was no earthly reason I had to. And also that you're secretly in love with me. Make sure you remind my office. There are times that I love Danny and there are times that I, I don't. Um, I think, but I, what I like about them is that mm-hmm. conflict that is going to exist just because of their jobs. Yeah. You know, and, and when you find yourself, you know, drawn to someone who you should not be in, in that job, like that is a compelling story to me. And yeah. there, there mm-hmm. are moments between them that I like, like in the earlier yeah. episode when he brings her the goldfish. Yes. Precious. That's sweet. Like it's just it is, really it's sweet. Very sweet. And and there are times that they each put some of their professional stakes on the line for each mm-hmm. other. But I do think it sometimes gets boiled down to banter and not so much. It does. You know, it's, real... it's, it's flash in the pan. And that's yeah. what happens with these forced romantic relationships. Sorkin right. is terrible <laughs> at writing romantic relationships when he intends to do it. When he doesn't intend to do it, he's brilliant. The side romantic relationships that pop up in a Sorkin show without him really paying attention to it are fantastic because he writes those people as people first, you know. Um, but but Danny, and also you're secretly in love with me. Like, that's not charming. <laughs> that's not cute. Yeah. You know, we're talking about something serious. Work is work, you know. Right. (laughs) Um, And and also, like, you know, I mean, CJ is the one woman, you know, in in this main cast. Like there's Donna, but Donna's not a major player as far as power structure, you know, in the West Wing. CJ is a major, major player. And whenever she's doing her job and she's being kick ass and Danny Kincannon comes in there and flirts with her to be cute, it drives me crazy because, like, she is the press secretary. Show her some damn respect. Respect, you know, like ask her out at a different time, like not when you're in the middle of work. Right. You know? right. Or at um, least make yeah. an appointment. I mean, at least Mallory made at an least, appointment. Right. <laughs> Mallory made an appointment to you come know. in and see Sam. I know. <laughs> Although that was the other thing, too. I'm like, OK, Sam is the deputy chief of communications. Right. And whatever. he's just open right? for the whole afternoon. And this is his whole afternoon can be spent arguing about school vouchers, even though it has nothing to do with any task mm-hmm. on his plate at that moment. Um, that seemed a little bit a little bit forced to me so. yeah. but it, <laughs> I don't know what I do find compelling about it is it does show I think the strain on personal relationships for everyone on the staff oh yeah you mm-hmm. know and how work they are married to their work and they are yeah. you know married to this job and you know especially that brings it home with Leo so much for me mm-hmm. and I mean there are times this show has made me cry oh, inconsolably yeah. you know oh and, yeah and, just because you do get that emotional connection mm-hmm. with some of these characters and, and you come to love them all in you know, in, in kind of in their own way. Um, and part of that is we spend so much time with them and this is still season one, mm-hmm. you know? And so maybe it's still finding it's Yeah. Feet. And yeah. they're all still mm-hmm. finding each other and their relationships mm-hmm. to each other. And maybe, you know, maybe when you're that smart, you just mm-hmm. almost have to hold the banter in check yeah. <laughs> like, are you putting this in the story because it serves the story or because it's funny? Right. Mm-hmm. That would be, I mean, that would be difficult to do. You'd have to have somebody always watching you and going over that with a group. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've never written a television episode, so I can't imagine how hard it is. But 
Yeah, it's, I think it's. I think it'd be pretty hard. I think it'd be. It's really difficult, and especially all of these episodes too. Most of the episodes throughout the first four seasons are written by Aaron Sorkin. He at least did the teleplay, if not the story and wow. the, the script. You know, um, and that to me, the amount of creative energy that that takes is unfathomable to me. I cannot imagine having that kind of output um, without having some very serious consequences in your own sanity levels. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's just, I, I, would I cannot even imagine. Mumbling in an empty room somewhere oh yeah no and, i can't believe yeah. i can't believe the man is not sitting somewhere <laughs> oh, drooling into a cup yeah. honestly right now right and, and for all the areas where it's you know it's it's fairly easy to go back and critique mm-hmm. the fact is he yeah. did in his own way over time really make me fall in love with all these people oh yeah you know, no absolutely mm-hmm. there's real power in that um, yeah so yeah. no i think it's, it's 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 amazing the work that they did here the one last thing i wanted to talk about is President Bartlett, who we don't see nearly enough of in this episode. No. But I love this exchange that he has with Charlie about George Washington yeah, when he's, he's reading like, the book. I can, and take, this, I can take him, right? <laughs> Do you think I could take George Washington? Take him at what, sir? I don't know. A war? Could you have taken George Washington in a war? Yeah. Well, you'd have the Air Force and you'd have the Minutemen, right? Minutemen were good. Still, I think you probably take him. <laughs> I love that whole thing with Charlie and Bartlett. And it is this very quick, it's like, you know, a 10 second digression. It has nothing to do with mm-hmm. anything else that's going on. But it's such a lovely, you know, bit of interaction. And I love the relationship between Charlie and President Bartlett. I think that is one of the most heartwarming relationships on the entire show throughout the entire run. Uh, the two of them together are just so lovely. And it has this really strong, you know, father son kind of vibe to it yeah. uh, that I, that I really love. And uh, so I just wanted to kind of bring that up because, uh, because I didn't see enough Bartlett in this episode. Oh, I know. I there's, there's not a lot of Bartlett in this episode, but I, I do love the Bartlett Charlie dynamic. Mm-hmm. And so I have a three way tie in my heart for favorite character between oh, yeah? CJ, Leo and Charlie. Oh, yeah. No, those are tough. Mm -hmm. I want to adopt Charlie and bring him home and feed him vegetables every day. Like, I just adore him. He's such a good kid. He's such an amazing kid. And I wish I had a classroom full of kids with his mind and and just his spirit because he's so, I mean, he's just so amazing. Oh, and his genuine goodness, too. Like, he's such a good person and a genuine person. You know, like there's so much, I think, pretense and ego that goes on around the West Wing. You look at Toby, you look at Sam, you look at, you know, Josh, and and they're all just kind of out there fluffing up their feathers all the time. But Charlie (laughs) is so genuinely and humbly himself Mm -hmm. all the time. And when he connects with people, he connects with them so genuinely and I, I love that character. I love the way he's written. I love the way Dula Hill plays him um, and the interactions that he has. He is he is kind of the um, the emotional anchor, I feel like, for the show. Like yeah. he is the one who is always grounded no matter what's going on around him. Charlie always has his feet on the ground, which I think is one of the most wonderful things about that character and can make him kind of easy to to not pay that close attention to. You know, because he's not as flashy and as wild and as funny as a lot of the other characters. But his ability to be to be grounded and to be kind uh, in almost every circumstance, you know, I, you never see him lose his cool. No, he's, just, he's the best. Charlie has. I mean, he is the heart, I think, in a lot of ways. And, and I think mm-hmm. his role on the show is is so unique because. He is there to take care of President Bartlett. He's not yeah. there for political gain. Mm-hmm. He's not there to, you know, champion issues or, or any of that. He is so he has um and maybe in some ways an advantage because he's mm-hmm. able to do a human centered job and not mm-hmm. a policy centered you know, job. Right, right, right. And that's, I think, maybe the thing about Charlie. That's very true. He's not the policy wonk. He's not there making arguments about panda bears or reparations <laughs> or anything. He is simply there living the life of a regular human person and connecting with everybody else there as human people. Right. And and Bartlett needs that because yeah. everyone else in his life, I mean, there's not many people who can play that role. And, mm-hmm. and Charlie 
demands so little in return, and yet he is always able to kind of give that yeah. emotion he's able to give of his heart, which is, is mm-hmm. really rare. Um, yeah. And I think in this episode especially, we missed an opportunity to look at education through Charlie's perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have liked to have heard about his high school experience and his thoughts on the vouchers. Right. His thoughts on reparations would have been mm-hmm. a great addition to this episode. Right, because we have a, a character in the main cast who could have something of value to say about both of these things. Exactly. You know? So can you go mm-hmm. back in time and cut Mandy out and give all of that time to Charlie? Because that would be awesome. <laughs> that would be so great. I will absolutely work on that in my time machine. <laughs> but for now, that'll do it for this week's episode of Jed Bartlett is my president. Sadly, it is time to uncurl from our comfortable fetal position of denial and get back to the real world where there's real work to be done. But I hope this little break has given you the will to fight for quality education for everyone because it truly is the cure for the disease. So thank you to Dr. Kelly Jones for hanging out with me this week. Dr. Jones, tell the fine people out there where they can find you. Okay, so I am launching a new podcast called The Southern Fried Scholar. Um, It'll be a a show about lifelong learning, creativity, and story. So Mm -hmm. you can find me at southernfriedscholar.com or on Twitter at Fried Scholar or Dr. Kelly Jones, K-E-L-L-Y-J-O-N-E-S. (laughs) Well, I love the fact that I have a good friend named Dr. Jones because that always brings me back to Indiana Jones. So I just I just like to call you Dr. Jones, even though you're my good friend and I could call you Kelly. It's fun to call you Dr. Jones. Well, and so (laughs) what I really want is to be Dr. Who. Mm -hmm. And there's already so there's a Dr. Jones because Martha Jones beat me to it. But, so when someone says Doctor Who, I want to say Doctor Jones, but <laughs> it's already been taken, right? Ah, <laughs> oh, that's all right. You're going to define. You're going to be the new definition of Doctor Jones. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll be back next week with critically acclaimed author Elisa Quitney and our thoughts on episode six of season one, Mr. Willis of Ohio, in which a widower gets to vote in Congress. Until then, here's a word from your deputy communications director. Education is the silver bullet. Education is everything. We don't need little changes. We need gigantic, monumental changes. Schools should be palaces. The competition for the best teachers should be fierce. They should be making six-figure salaries. School should be incredibly expensive for government and absolutely free of charge to its citizens, just like national defense. That's my position. I just haven't figured out how to do it yet. Jed Bartlett is My President is a Chipperish Media production. To get exclusive Chipperish content and access to a community of amazing people, go to patreon.com slash chipperish. All clips in this podcast were used under the fair use exemption for criticism and commentary of the U.S. Copyrights Act. <laughs>